welcome back to the Feathers Pub in Westminster for another edition of the ever-changing On the House podcast. I'm Philip Lee, Liberal Democrat, Member of Parliament for Bracknell. And this time last week, my colleague and fellow Conservative escapee, Sam Jima, was the independent MP for East Surrey. That all changed this weekend at the Liberal Democrat conference when Sam was unveiled in a blaze of glory by Joe Swinson as the party's latest recruit. So the podcast has gone from 100% Conservative to 100% Liberal Democrat in just three weeks. And surely the country can't be far behind. Now, Sam, the question that I've been uh, itching to ask you for days on end is where did you get those trousers? Oh, there's, uh, I can, I can uh, get you a pair. Um, Banana Republic. Banana Republic. <laughs> oh, <dear>. and, um, <laughs> Just seriously, I, I, how's it, how I, do you I feel? I didn't expect them to make that kind of impact, uh, but uh, they, they clearly did. And so how do you feel now that you're a Liberal Democrat, Sam? Relieved. Uh, relieved that I'm not an outcast um, in my party nationally or locally, and relieved that I can argue for what I believe in without being treated as a rebel. Um, we all come into politics wanting to make a difference, wanting to make arguments, and Brexit is the big issue of the day. And I was, I am clearly out of sync with where the Conservative Party was and in sync with where the Liberal Democrats are. I think what uh, Boris Johnson did, which was to withdraw the whip, actually brought things into sharp relief. I didn't, never saw that as a matter of discipline. Um, it, it, was, it was a test of faith and um, a faith in whether or not you want to support a no-deal Brexit. I couldn't support it, and um, rather than be banished into the political wilderness, I thought, you know, by being with the Liberal Democrats, I can make the right arguments. I mean, having been through this myself, I mean, I took weeks of contemplation and I looked at what the Liberal Democrats were standing on across the board. It wasn't just Brexit. I mean, like you... For me, Brexit was the main precipitant. But did you look and think, actually, this? I think, yeah, I, I'm, that's where I am, and that's how that's what I believe about that particular policy area. Is that how you did it? No, I, I think so. Um, I mean, the issue goes deeper than Brexit. Obviously, it goes deeper into the sense that I think if you are a Cameron Conservative, which kind of I was, that those are those are other values of the Conservative Party today. There is a lot that is in a no-deal Brexit entails in terms of um, attitudes and values that I couldn't uh, sign up to. But on the Liberal Democrat side, I don't think I agree with every single policy the Liberal Democrats have ever had, any more than I would have agreed with every single policy the Conservatives um, had ever had. But I think there was just clearly for me a sense that um, if you're talking about being in the centre of the of politics and um, being more inclusive, more open, those values are more on that side of the house than on the conservative side of the house. And, and how did you find conference? I mean, I know how I felt. I mean, it just felt just really different. And I was glad to be back by the sea. I've never, I was never a subscriber to. That's where I think David Cameron made a mistake was stopping going to Bournemouth. I quite like being by the sea for a, for a conference, but it, the whole atmosphere is different. It's more democratic. People were incredibly friendly and warm towards me. Um, how did you find it? Well, I want to resist the temptation to say everything before me joining the Liberal Democrats was bad and everything is good, but this was the first conference that I have been actually given the opportunity to speak in front of the conference. 
I've been a Conservative MP for nine years. I've been a Conservative member for 20 years. I'd never, ever been given that opportunity before. And it was, there was something electrifying being able to stand in front of people and share with them a little bit of what you believe in and get such a positive reaction. I think one of the most interesting things is clearly the Liberal Democrats as a party recognise, want to embrace new people. You know, it was their biggest conference. Uh, They're welcoming new MPs. They're very ambitious uh, politically. And um, as you said, it's quite strange being at a party conference where kind of some of the main events are canvassing training for activists. It's... (laughs) That's not something that I've uh, experienced before. And I try to immerse myself in the, everything. So I even, went, I even went to the Glee Club where I had to do this karaoke. Um, now, my wife told me... What, Sam, did you, what did you sing? What did you sing, Sam? I think I, I, I played it safe. I went for the land. Uh, I avoided... Uh, what's, there was another song, The Defectors Cometh, which I chose not, not to go for. And also I had the lobby singing with me. So I thought, so long as I was singing with the press lobby, I was kind of on the safe side. I mean, like you, I, I, I don't feel comfortable saying, oh, this is so much better than before and all this sort of thing because there are some really good people and friends within the Conservative Party who I used to enjoy meeting at conference. But I guess the atmosphere just felt different to me and I think it was really positive and um, I was really glad I went. And, uh, you know, and the speech by Joe Swinson I thought was really strong, content was really good and, you know, we're on our way. I am 100% uh, with you. But um, obviously, listeners don't just want to listen to a loving between Philip, you and me, well, do I they? I like to think they might do that, actually. So we've invited the Fox <laughs> into their hen house on this week's edition of On the House. Our special guest is Owen Bennett, Whitehall editor of The Telegraph since August this year. I'll put his job as more sort of the modern equivalent of a war correspondent. Um, he's also author of the biography of Michael Gove, A Man in a Hurry, which broke the Gove cocaine story, and The Brexit Club, the inside story of their Leave campaign shock victory. So on the house, we're open to challenge, new ideas. Uh, Owen, uh, welcome. Thank, Thank well, you for accepting our invitation. This, when I agreed to this, you know, as a Telegraph journalist a few weeks ago, I thought it was a true blue Tory one, and then you've, <laughs> you've shifted that, didn't you? you shifted yeah, that. that. Blimey, now I'm here with a Lib Dem loving. Vote <laughs> blue, go yellow. How am I going to explain this to the bosses? Come on, come on, what are you doing to me? But, well, well, no, it's a pleasure to be here, obviously, obviously. Great. Um, <laughs> it'll be, it'll be, it'll be, I mean, you, you've done, you know, you've written books, you've been at City AM, you're now at the Telegraph. You are on the front line as far as our Brexit um, is concerned. Uh, kind of, what is your perspective? You know, we're in, we, it feels like we're in the Brexit endgame now. Kind of, what, what's your read on the situation? Yeah, I think it does feel like that. Obviously, we spend, I spend a lot of my job talking to people like you guys, texting you guys every five minutes for the past six weeks, saying, you're going to defect you, you're going to defect you. And, uh, and you did. always reply. No, you didn't I do always, apologize. Oh, you replied once very strongly saying you weren't. That was a few weeks ago, so I forgive you for that one. But yeah, it does feel like we're in the, it does feel like we're in the Brexit endgame now. It feels like a lot of various strands have come to a head. And one of those strands is, how does a Tory party with such opposing views try and hold itself together? And Boris Johnson's made a decision that he's going to come down on the side of the more hardline Brexiteers. And, you know, that's why you guys, you know, left or had the whip removed and then left. So you feel like he's kind of trying to call that a little bit. And then you feel like he's trying to call the EU's bluff a little, little bit with this threat of a no deal. 
and then he's tried to call... He's calling lots of bluffs, Yeah, he's, he? he's, call, he's calling the judges bluffs. You know, it's, as we record this, it's you know, they're just finished in the Supreme Court, or the three-day hearing, whether the prorogation was uh, unlawful. So it feels like a lot of things that Theresa May was putting off for a long time are now being called. But there was a reason why Theresa May was putting them off, because their parties in horribly divided, and Brexit evidently isn't as simple to deliver as many of us thought at the start. Certainly I didn't realise it was as complicated as it as it turned out to be. But do you, do, do you think this strategy of calling the EU's bluff, judges' bluff, MPs' bluff, removing the whip, you know, acting by all means necessary, could actually... I mean, what, what kind of state do we come out of? Well, the, well the, I mean, that's, you know, that's sort of the big question. I guess it's one of them, we'll find out, you know, did the ends justify the means? And if Boris Johnson does get a new deal with the EU in the next couple of weeks and, and it does get through Parliament, then people will look back on all of these things and they'll say, you know, Philip and Sam, you were collateral damage in the Grand Master Plan. However, if he doesn't, then he'll say, you know, you, the, these are the warning signs that what judges were saying, what you guys have been saying. So I think that, you know, it's difficult to know the proof of the pudding is in the eating so it's difficult to know at the moment I know that's a slightly sort of evasive answer but I think it's very difficult to sit here and say this is definitely going to work and I, I don't even know if Downing Street know that it's definitely going to work either look I mean I when I saw the Prime Minister before he became Prime Minister in July I said how are you going to be able to govern you haven't got a majority and you know, trying to get a deal through the backstop is the backstop. It's a creation of red lines drawn in London. It's not a creation of Brussels. Um, and even if you get that done, I'm not even sure you've got the numbers to get that through. And he, you know, what he's like is he was like, well, you know, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, and it's all sort of bluster. And so I sort of look back on that exchange, and I think, and here we are now. I don't think any of us could have predicted the ruthless approach of, of, uh, with regards to prorogation, withdrawing the whip and the like. And now where we are, we're, we have a court case where a former prime, Conservative Prime Minister is taking a Conservative administration to court. I mean, can I repeat that? I mean, it's just, it is quite remarkable. And I, I, I don't think this ends well, um, either for the Conservative administration or indeed the country at the moment. And I just hope that some sanity will come, come into this at some point and recognise that unless we go back to the British public with this, in some form or other, in a referendum, this is always going, it isn't going to be solved. I think it's just how it's gone. I mean, the, the role of the press is key in all of this. And um, it would be just helpful to know from you, Owen, has Brexit changed the role of the press? And... Um, in terms of how you report, are you getting more sort of activist journalism? How, how do you see it? I think that the, the, the press and the Westminster lobby is one of the few institutions to have actually not really looked at itself in the wake of the Brexit vote and really think, are we serving society properly? I think that actually we are, as a lobby, continuing to do what we always did before, which is perhaps rely too much on source quotes and you know off-the-record briefings and that kind of thing. And actually, maybe we could dig into some bigger issues. You know, I always remember that the Windrush scandal was found by someone outside the lobby. You know, that should have been a lobby story. That was there in the lobby to be found, the fact that this bureaucracy wasn't working in the Home Office. But it was someone outside the lobby that found that. And I think that is telling that maybe we were collectively 
not focusing on the right things. Now, same with Yellowhammer. Exactly the same. You know, it's it's difficult because obviously we we have to provide you know. A, a, a compendium of what's happened during the day and we have to you know and obviously we write for different audiences and as you said you know I've been people would look at my career I started at local papers I went then went to the Daily Express then the Daily Mirror then Huff Post now City M then the Telegraph so I've done right left in out on the up all, all on of the that, up all of that and that's, that's because you learn to write for your audience so you know we, we sort of try to give the audience what they want but I think sometimes we could be a bit more challenging and maybe step away from some of the slightly easier stories that come from source quotes and maybe try and find a bit more Stuff of substance. Do you think it's too much gossip? Yeah, I, th- I think sometimes there's a bit too much gossip. Uh, I think sometimes we focus on the slightly wrong things, and then we can kind of maybe get played a little bit, you know, because if people know you're going to re- report source stuff and it's not going to come back to them, then maybe you, maybe there isn't that level of kind of integrity to it. But, but, and I include myself in this. I'm not setting myself apart from this at all, you know. And sometimes I think I look at stories that I do, and I think, you know, was that really a good? the best way of doing that and I think the lobby does need to look at itself but things are happening so fast there's so much to do it's difficult for actually us journalists to take a step back and go okay what are the big other issues that we're missing because Brexit is all consuming yeah I mean Gitto and I um, Gitto Beb and I talked about this before the summer last summer not this summer and we when we both resigned it, the, the sort of it was put about that we'd slightly lost the plot the subtle you know, that stigma of always lost it. Have you not? That's <laughs> well, for others to judge. The point, I think both Gitto and I were looking at it, were saying, you know, we can't see how this ends other than in an impasse. And yet we were struggling to be taken seriously, actually, if I'm honest, by the lobby. And we kept saying, whichever way this goes, this ends with no progress and, and with a, a brick wall. And why is that do you think I mean why do we I mean we we were convinced with our numbers that it was going in fact we exchanged we the two of us spoke this was like July 2018 and said it will be down it will be between 30 and 40 will be the final vote the number they'll be short to pass the deal and it was 34 so and we had this private sort of prediction and, and yet we couldn't be taken seriously. And, and I, didn't, I don't know whether that's because higher up the food chain get more preference in terms of their stories and the sort of gossipy type thing, or whether it's just, I don't know. I mean, I'd be interested to know what you think, because Gitto and I in particular were pretty consistent from, from then. I think it's, you know, with regards to which, you've got to think which outlets are going to run this story. You've got to be quite hard-headed. I think who's going to go to this? Which journalist do I trust? I think there's ways of pitching it. Journalists always love an exclusive. If you say to a journalist, I'm going to give this to you and no one else, they're going to work a lot harder to get it in the paper, quite bluntly, because they're going to think, well, I've got this. This sets me apart. So on the kind of practical levels, that's that's the thing to do. I've got some exclusive for you. Go, go on, Sam. Who is it? Off the record. Go on. Who's the, who's the next effector? <laughs> go on. Go on. Go on. Yeah, you're saying that into a microphone, yeah. Sam. It's no, not it's really not. off the record. It's off the record. No one's listening. It's on the house, so to speak. Look, I, I think uh, I, I don't know who the next defector is, but I do know that what is happening. If we were to go back to that subject, is there are a lot of Conservative MPs who are unhappy, a lot of them who will stand down, and the Conservative Party will lose a lot of good talent as a result, because it's much easier to say you're standing down than you're going to defect or you're going to run as an independent. And they'll all say when they announce it, it's got nothing to do with Boris Johnson. But um, so, yes, it's all well and good, these strong-arm tactics, but the party's got to survive. But in a, but in a, I mean, not that I care anymore, but... 
I would say that there you've given a, a, a good example, actually, of a problem with journalism, because that was a, is a good story to write. That would be, you know, conservative MPs are pretty much, you know, en masse, maybe is too strong a word, but are standing down because they don't like the leadership of Boris Johnson. Yet when I go to these MPs, they will say to me on the record, oh, it's something to do with Boris, I want to spend more time with the family, blah, blah, blah. So actually, in that situation, if those MPs were to stand up and go on the well, record and say, use my name, and if they were to say on, on the record, I actually, I'm standing down, and I'm telling you why, and it's because of Boris Johnson or Brexit, then we wouldn't have to rely on the kind of sources close to Sam Gima tell me that actually there's other reasons. So, you know, there's a, there's a kind of bravery aspect from you guys as well. Not, I think, when you guys specifically, but the MPs. I think we've been quite brave. I think, yeah, I exclude you two from that. Can I just say that? But, uh, on the record. I think, so, I think, you'd be very I think, brave. I think that would, that, would be, that would be easy. You know, that would be a way of improving <laughs> the, the, the reporting if people were willing to go on the record a bit more. I, I think the rate of attrition is very high. And um, it's something that someone somewhere should be looking at because it's most MPs in their 40s and 50s are now asking themselves is this really what I want to do and it's either because of um, the very difficult environment being an MP, difficulties with your association, uh, the kind of mail you're getting through, hate mail it's forcing a lot of otherwise good public servants to question whether this is what they want to do Right, let's get started with a look at the major events of the past week. Um, I guess the first thing to start with is the Supreme Court on prorogation. Uh, thoughts, Owen? I was down there and it was interesting because you've, you watch the kind of first 20 minutes of, of the, the arguments being put forward and you think, God, this is really interesting, I'm into this. After about three hours, you're like, oh, can, oh Oscar, can we, can we wrap it up now, guys? Like, you know, it's, it's a bit dull, but it's a, it did get a bit technical. But what was very clear was that, you know, Lord Panic, who was making the case on behalf of Gina Miller, he was making the point that uh, Boris prorogued Parliament for political reasons. But even if he didn't do it for political reasons, it was still the wrong thing to do. The guy uh, for the, the government came back and said Boris Johnson did not prorogue Parliament for political reasons, but even if he did, it was okay. So you had this really strange situation where both sides were arguing against each other. Looking at it from today, it seems the Supreme Court, the way they were questioning, they were talking about if we were to find this is unlawful, what should the remedy be? Which suggests to me they're thinking that they are going to find it unlawful. And that's, I mean, what happens after that is, is you know, who knows? Well, I mean, I haven't followed it closely, but the bit that I've picked up, and it's probably from you and your colleagues in the lobby on Twitter, to, to be honest, it's just very, very sort of small pieces of evidence, like members of the government not being able to sign witness statements. And I think the kind of light that casts on uh, this system of government is actually incredibly worrying. I mean, we've had sofa government... You know, under Blair, which was unhelpful, which we, in retrospect, when we look at some of the blunders of that period, you could lay some of it at the style of government there. You know, with Cameron, you know, there were the accusations of chemocracy. Kind of whenever things go wrong in Britain, some of it you can always sort of always look at the way government is conducted, and often that has a role to play. And for senior members of the government not being able to sign witness statements, I'm not a I'm not a lawyer. I just thought that was a bit worrying. Yeah, I mean, I think this whole... The whole the one thing that will come out of Brexit is a public inquiry 
an assessment of our state of our constitution, should it be written down, um, the position of the monarch. It was, I think I mentioned it last week, a lawyer friend of mine said, as the monarch retreats from the political fray, a void is created into which judges are now stepping. We're seeing this happening. And I, um, you know, maybe this was necessary. Maybe in 20, 30, 40 years' time, when, oh, and you're writing your political history book in your retirement, you'll look back and think, actually, we were living... Make sure we're in there. We were living <laughs> through a period of, of actually of significant reform and change. And, and actually, Brexit... Is, is actually a second-order issue in compares to the impact it's actually had on our democracy. We may end up with electoral reform. We, it, it, there's, a, there's a lot happening at the moment, and I think we're all struggling to, to keep our bearings. I think that one of the issues is uh, your new party, when they helped bring in the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act, some of your old party. For me, you know, we have an unwritten constitution in this country, and when you start writing bits of it down, which is what that piece of legislation did, it has knock-on effects you don't even think of for other aspects of the constitution. So the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act was cited in the Supreme Court as an example of how the Prime Minister has the power to prorogue when he wants. You know, when that piece of legislation was drawn up and put through, no one ever thought it'd be done like that. So if you, you either write down the whole thing or you don't write down any of it and you're on convention, I think that was the problem for me. So are we heading to some kind of constitutional breakdown, do you think? Uh, yeah, I think we are. I think we are because there's people in, in Downing Street who see who actually are using Brexit. Not because, Brexit is a means to an end of smashing the system for some of them. Dom Cummings, you know, wants to smash the political class in this country. And he believes Brexit is the sledgehammer with which to do that. He cares I, about I didn't smashing see that the on system. the side of a bus. Well, exactly. He <laughs> cares about smashing the system of government uh, and reforming the civil service more than he cares about Brexit, if you ask me. So he sees it as a means to an end. Yeah, I mean, there is that sense of creative destruction around that man, which... I get, you know, I can understand the intellectual sort of force of it. But the problem is, is all the collateral damage on the, on the way. And also, there isn't really a democratic mandate. I don't think um, the public voted for revolution in 2016. In their own mind, they just, you know, the 52% voted for something which they had been told was going to be a positive experience, the easiest deal in history, extra money for the NHS when it's turning out not to be and to take that mandate and be this destructive and this confrontational with various parts of our society I think is pretty irresponsible um, I mean moving on to if I other... could just say something that I think I agree with you very much Philip which is that a lot is now being done in the name of the 17.4 million people who voted leave um, Civil service reform, I don't think, was... Wasn't on the list. Was on the list. Um, smashing up our constitution wasn't on the list. And um, Singapore and Thames wasn't on the list. Lying to the monarch, compromising uh, um, the monarch's position. Uh, I shouldn't uh, think uh, that uh, would have been available. Uh, allegedly, I mean, that's not... Um, it said, but I, I think there's... Well, actually, that's a, that was in the Scottish court. I mean, it's not a... Le- it's, it's, it's something... I'm just repeating what, what the court concluded. And, and I think, Owen, going back to your point around we're heading for some kind of constitutional breakdown. Um, as someone who sort of observes politics, writes about politics, just what, what is the way through this? Because a, a lot is being done in the name of people who never voted for this. So what's I, the way through I think it? the way through it is a, a public exercise, whether that is a second referendum or a general election. But there needs to be something to really relieve this tension here. I think that, that it needs to be. I mean... I mean, very quickly, you know, you guys are now part of a party who want to revoke 
Article 50. Yeah, are you guys after a democratic after, mandate? After a general, are you guys both comfortable with that? I, I'm I'm comfortable with that because it'll be it'll be after a general election. Um, it means there is clear choice in that general election. You have one party that's saying, if we win the general election, we'll revoke Article 50. Another party saying we will have a referendum, but we can't tell you whether we'll be leave or remain. That's the Labour Party. And the Conservative Party saying, um, is Brexit at any cost? And function of democracy is you've got to have real choice for voters. So I'm very fine with that. And for those who say that is undemocratic, I say, well, you're getting quite close to arguing for proportional representation. <laughs> the idea is undemocratic. The Liberal Democrats getting 323 MPs at the next election. If that's not a mandate for doing what we've put before the people, I can't think of what needs to happen. I mean, it would be a remarkable result if that were to happen. There is no explicit democratic mandate for the no-deal Brexit that we're careering towards. Um, so I know I'm, I, when it was put in front of us, um, we, you know, it's like a shadow cabinet, and I went, that's absolutely spot on. It's exactly the position I would put to the country in a general election. But if you're asking me, do I still want a referendum? Do I still want to go through a deliberative process uh, with the British public so that they actually get to choose for something which is actually what they're going to get? Absolutely, because not only do I think that would resolve Brexit, I actually think it would go a long way to healing the wounds, the splits in society between families, generations, regions and everything else, which we're going to have to do whatever happens as a country over the next 10 years. I, I mean, I mean, moving on to something else that happened this week. I mean, the Prime Minister in Luxembourg um, and his experience, I saw the video of him in the hospital. Um, he's not had a good week, has he, Owen? If you build yourself as the Hulk and then you dodge the press conference, it's not good. I mean, I think the Luxembourg Prime Minister was wrong. I think he should have actually, you know, you're hosting the dignitary. And mm-hmm. he said, I don't want to do this press conference here because of the noise. I think you, as host, should say... Okay, we're going to move it. I think he was wrong to do that. However, like I said, if you build yourself 24 hours before as the Hulk, then you should go, yeah, bring it on. I'll do it in front of the protesters. Actually, you make quite good optics for his side to be there, literally having the Europeans shouting at him and him saying, no, I'm, you know, that's, I thought that'd be quite good optics for him. What was bad optics was just not being there at all, having described yourself, you know, alluded to yourself being the Hulk 24 hours before. Yeah. And the, 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 the exchange in the hospital, I thought, was really quite powerful because. The whole Vote Leave campaign was on three things, one of which, you know, take back control, Turkey succession, and the other thing was lots of money for the NHS. In walks the front man of the Vote Leave campaign, being sort of advised by the same team who set up Vote Leave into a hospital, and bang, somebody just says, what the hell are you doing here? This hospital's, I mean, I forget all the details, but it was not a good look. And I think, actually, it's because people, I think, are increasingly thinking we've been had here we were promised this for the nhs the nhs is where it is now i actually think in 2016 they made a mistake by promising this because working in the nhs as i still do the nhs is constantly under pressure and throwing money at it isn't really all of what's required it's a much more complicated uh, challenge and i i think what um boris johnson was reaping this week was was just the, the sort of the, the rage of people who had been promised that the nhs was going to be absolutely fantastic after brexit it was one of the reasons they voted for it when in fact actually that was not deliverable and you know this is what happens when you mislead the public like vote leave did in 2016 I mean, what I'm finding strange about what's happening now is this sort of weird election campaign that we're in, where you know the prime minister turns up to give speeches that are campaign speeches, like he did 
um, in front of the police force or mixed visits that are part of the campaign. That is not happening. Um, we don't know when the general election is going to be. And it's sort of, it just as a commentator rather than a participant in politics, I just ask myself, so what does a prime minister who's got a majority of minus 43, so can't pass legislation, not clear what negotiations are going on in Europe, do? But there's a, there's a general election coming. And for me, that's the, without going into the ins and outs of each visit, I just thought, what, what does Boris Johnson do to show that he is prime minister and he's running the country? He's, he's trying to hit the, 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 the points that they think, which is law and order to so the police, NHS, the hospital. He's trying to hit those kind of touch points. They've got some good clips to show to, to people on the campaign trail. So you're right, this is, a, this is a general election dress rehearsal, if you like. And yeah, the lines are getting fluffed a little bit here, right? But at least, he would say, at least he's out there. And these awkward confrontations, sometimes that can be spun as, I'm engaging with the public. Yeah, it didn't really look like that. That was the problem with the video in the hospital. Um, it looked like, said, said it looked like somebody who didn't want to be engaged with it, but he looked unhappy in the exchange. And his main sort of, you know, this is, his sort of USP was certainly what the Tory party membership, the faithful thought, was he's a man of the people. He's got the common touch. He makes people laugh on have I, have I got news for you and all that sort of stuff. That, to me, seems to be wearing thin very, very, very quickly. I mean, what, what do you think, Owen? I mean, is it... Yeah, I don't think... I, I, I think I agree that the, this is a time for... People want a serious person in charge at the moment, I think. I think Theresa May maybe went a bit too far with that, but I think that they don't... Now is not the time for a joker. This is not like 1997, Tony Blair, wrap yourself in the Union Jack kind of time. People want solutions, and not just to Brexit. Austerity is a big thing, you know, that people are... are, are are feeling the consequences of and are blaming the government for. There's lots of other things, you know. Social care is a huge one, which, you know, hasn't really been discussed since 2017 general election on a national level. So I think that there are other issues as well. So there's a frustration Brexit's not being done, and there's a frustration that all we're talking about is Brexit as well. And, and, and the other thing I've, I've always observed about Boris Johnson is there's a strong desire to be liked there, which is often a weakness. I think I thought that was typical of the specious politician well he's particularly like that you know there's a sense he wants to be the man of the center of attention he wants to be just you know he wants a statue i remember that in the past that you know there aren't statues to journalists yes sort of sort of you know it's all about self it's not about anything more important maybe more serious i mean do you think i mean i wonder whether he's a vulnerable man being played by others i mean dominic cummings is very much a gove person there was this rumour of a sort of a strategy meeting somewhere on a Sunday with them all, they, and, and, and Michael Goves, Dominic Cummings turned up, etc., etc. Do you think there's a danger that Boris Johnson is just a just full guy here, he's being played? I don't think there's a danger that he's being played in that regard. I think that um, Boris Johnson perhaps does like to, need to be liked. Ironically, his great hero, Winston Churchill, was someone who didn't really care about that kind of stuff and was quite the opposite and used to revel in actually kind of being disliked. So, um, so I think that... that Yes, he, he does have a desire to be liked, which Theresa May didn't have, and yet he's behaved much more aggressively towards other MPs than Theresa May did. It's quite, I, I think, uh, quite at a basic level, you've got someone who likes adulation, but being advised by someone who doesn't care what people think. So I wonder if the strategy that Cummings is developing is actually the right strategy for Boris Johnson, given that Cummings doesn't care and his response to any kind of incoming fire is... To, uh, to flip the people the bird. And you, but you've got a Prime Minister who actually cares what people think. And how, how does that work? But I actually happen to 
be a lot more relaxed about the what happened at the hospital in the sense that you know we politicians in election time are all going to get accosted by members of the public it's what happens and often the people that come up to you are not people that <laughs> agree with you and um they, they 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 vent so i think it's if you are going to commit to meet the public then that will happen i'm actually out i actually like the fact that he does that rather than what we had what we've had recently where politicians just avoid any kind of contact with the public because they don't want to cause a scene they don't want a camera to pick it up So we spend a lot of time talking about the conservatives but hey Philip we're now liberal democrats so I think feels good doesn't it sir it feels good and we've got to spend more time talking about the liberal democrats Can I just point out to the listeners as well that you two now have yellow orange uh, things on your microphone whereas I've got the blue one so yeah. you've really bought into this guys you really bought well, into this if anybody's thinking of a Christmas present for me my stocking filler yellow tie please yellow tie for Sam I just I, bought one there we so are I've just bought one you just bought one from the well, Dem shop no, 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 from the Lib Dems. <laughs> I mean, so obviously you guys, you guys are now, you know, fully fledged Lib Dems. You've got the music here in front of us, the sandals over there, all that kind of stuff. But the, the second word in the title is Democrats, right? So surely you guys should stand down and trigger by elections and say to the people who voted to join as Conservatives, do you want me as a Lib Dem? Well, there's a general election coming very soon. One. Two. In my case, the reason why I am where I am is because Boris Johnson withdrew the whip. And... I was not a member of, a, of the Conservative Party. I want to be a member of a party, and he can't blame me for choosing a party that I think represents my values. So he triggered it. He triggered the situation himself. So why not argue that to the voters directly? Why not trigger a by-election and say, OK, this is where I am. Put your faith in me there'll again. There'll be a general election very soon. Uh, there'll, be, uh, there'll be a very... And uh, voters can decide. I, I, look, I think the, the elephant in the room is Brexit. It needs to be sorted out. The public want it sorted out one way or the other. I don't think precipitating by-elections is where we are. We need to get on with it as the parliament, in Parliament when we're allowed to. And, uh, and then go, we will be at a general election, I suspect, maximum six months, maybe a bit longer, at which point then people will have a say. And, and that's the way it should be, I think. Is there not a danger with you guys joining the Lib Dems that... You agree on Brexit, sure, that you, you know, you're there on Brexit, but when you get that away, you know, you and Chukaramuna, do you guys share a lot of stuff on the economy? Because I don't see the, 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 the links there particularly. I, I, I actually think there's much more there than, I mean, obviously the main precipitant for both of us has been Brexit. I mean, that's what's brought this about. But if you look at the policies on climate change and the environment, if you look at policies on, on cross-party, for me, cross-party commission on health and social care, I've been trying to argue for that in the Conservative Party since I came in in 2010. I've got nowhere with it. And here is a party that actually wants to advocate it. When you look at the, the actual obvious need to reform capitalism, we're both capitalists, Sam and I, but we can both see that there are issues with the way in which capitalism has, has evolved in recent years. All of this is under the umbrella of Lib Dems. Quite clearly, they're openly talking about it. So yes, as Sam said earlier, there will be the odd policy here and there where you think, mm, not so sure about that. But there certainly were, for me, when I was in the Conservative Party, there were policies like that. I think ultimately, joining a party, voting for a party, and in our case, being members of Parliament in a party, there's always compromise. That's the nature of politics. It's a broad church. But I, I'm more than comfortable across, across many, many areas in, in defining myself as a Liberal Democrat. And I mean, I'll just sort of add to it and amplify some of the points he made. Um, that where, where, where we are in politics today, what is 
being contested are some of the fundamentals of our liberal democracy. Do you believe in property rights or not? It doesn't sound to me that the Labour Party does. Do you believe in the rule of law or not? Sometimes it doesn't sound to me that Her Majesty's government does. And so there is a lot that brings us together contesting and defending the fundamentals of our liberal democracy that the two large parties are willing to play fast and loose with in order to achieve whatever their current political objectives are. And um, the other opportunity is that the world is changing, voters are changing. It's very clear that the sort of voters the Conservative Party wants to win now are very different to the sort of voters that it has won before. I mean, I was surprised to read, for example, when uh, Boris Johnson met some of the would-be rebels and said to Anne Milton, if we have to lose Guildford, we lose Guildford. Right? So those voters need representing. And if the Conservative Party is going after a different type of voter, i.e. what the, the archetypal leave voter then there is a big opportunity for the Liberal Democrats to pick up, in addition to the voters they've always won, um, free market thinking, uh, but have it but one prosperity and social justice uh, voters uh, that are across the country that may have voted remain. So there is that opportunity and that brings us together. And I think, I mean, certainly I rode back with, um, I was on the train back of Chucker from Bournemouth and I know we're not going to agree on everything, but we both thought we'd rather be in a party where we can have that debate than in the Conservative Party at the moment where if you disagree with Boris Johnson, you get the whip withdrawn. Or if you happen to be the Prime Minister of Luxembourg, he doesn't turn up to the press conference. Do you think, that, just finally, do you think the revoke, the hardcore revoke position scared off other defectors? It's not hardcore. Okay, we take the word hardcore out. Do you think the revoke position... I think this is what the judges would call think, leading the witness. Do you think the revoke position... <laughs> no, scared I don't think so. I know Margot James was saying that she was mulling it over at the beginning of last week and then she's changed her mind. Look, I mean, I think when you actually think about the policy and the fact that it clearly states if we get a democratic mandate, we will revoke, um, I don't see why anyone would have been put off by that. Going into the next general election... There's going to be a Brexit party, a party that can't make its mind up, and a Remain party. Okay, it's quite clear. And I know which one I would rather be in, and I've made my decision. And I think voters like clarity. And, um, you know, you look at people who are successful now, whether you like them or loathe them, people like Trump, they're clear. And yeah. I think it's good to be clear with voters where you stand and what you're going to do. And here you've got a position that say 48% of the electorate support that position, be clear. And um, yes, it might have scared of some voters, but I think what Philip says is absolutely right, that come the election, we're going to be in a position where it's all in or all out. And you can't be in the middle fudging this. And I think Jo, jo Swinton is right to say where she stands, whatever the consequences are. And over 6 million people signed the revoke petition. If we get 6 million votes, that's a good policy, yeah? So let, let's move on from the day-to-day stuff and look at one of the biggest and yet, I think, least understood figures in our government, Michael Gove. Owen, oh, you have spent nights with Michael Gove. <laughs> and I, I suppose days as well. I have, I mean, you've written this political biography. Let, let's, not, let's not dwell on sort of this scandal element. What is your take on Michael Gove? He served in Cameron's government, 
served in May's government, led the Vote Leave campaign, was negotiating for a deal with Labour um, to get May's deal through, and is now head of No Deal Planet. Yeah, he's been on a, many journeys as you guys, isn't he? I think the thing with Gove is that he is fundamentally he's a radical, actually, and he believes that when you're in government, you're in to do stuff. You're not there just to watch the shop and make sure that you know everyone gets paid on time, all that kind of stuff. You're there to change things. He doesn't and, consume office. No, no, no. He's he's there to change things. He's a big reforming Secretary of State in Education, uh, in DEFRA, and in Justice, which I think one of the tragedies of Gove is that he, you know, his time in Justice was curtailed by the referendum. And actually, if it had carried on there, I think we would have seen some reforms, which in a way only a Conservative. Justice Secretary could have done and got away with. So I think he's a big reformer, but with that comes someone who, you know, does make enemies, even though, as you you guys will both know, he's very, very polite when you meet him. He's sort of arch-polite. He kind of weaponises politeness. But he's not afraid to make enemies, like the teaching unions, and, he's, and you know, remain voters. But I think, above and everything else, and this has come out with the Cameron book this week, um, David Cameron's frustration with Gove was that Gove didn't fall into line and falling as part of the team during the referendum. And Gove has always been someone who's loyal to ideas. He was, you know, adopted into a working-class family in Aberdeen, fishing family, and he got to Oxford University and the BBC and the Cabinet on the power of his ideas. It wasn't a chumocracy that got him there. It was the power of him working hard and what he believed in. And when it came to that Brexit decision, he had the choice between loyal to his ideas or loyal to his friends, and he chose loyalty to his ideas. What, what makes him tick? Is it just ideas? It's, like, it's the sense that with Gove that anything can be taken away at the last minute. That's why the book is called A Man in a Hurry because everywhere he's gone, he's worked quickly. This is a guy, like I said, he was adopted at sort of three months old and he could have quite easily been adopted by a family who didn't send him to a private school in Aberdeen, who made him work in, in the Aberdeen Harbour and processing fish all his life and he wouldn't have fulfilled his potential. When he was 15 and his father's business was sold and there was, a, you know, would he be able to stay at the private school was a big moment. He got a scholarship. So there's often been times in Michael's life where things could have been taken away from him and he's worked very, very hard to keep them. And that's kind of his mentality with a lot of things. Do you think he still has a shot at being prime minister one day? I mean, I think if Boris Johnson can't get the deal through, if Boris Johnson has to ask for an extension and he resigns rather than do that, the Conservatives might not want a long leadership contest. They might want someone who's coming who's across the detail, and that is Gove's pitch. I know the detail, I know everything here. Give me a chance. So I think he's, he, has, he has got a chance. I mean, it'd be great for my book sales, I'll tell you that. I, I'm going to talk him up every day. And I should still keep him on my Christmas card list, should I? Of course I? you should, Sam. He would love you. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so, so you think Gove still has a shot at being PM? What in? I mean, him and the final question on this is Gove Cummings. What's that relationship like? Who's left a mark on who? I think, you know, Gove is certainly more bullish when he's working with Cummings. When Cummings worked with him at education, then he left, and he didn't work with him at Justice and DEFRA, and Gove was a lot more conciliatory. Now he's come back, and Gove is there, going on the Mars show, talking about, will we break the law? I'm not sure. And that is kind of slightly sort of Cummings firing up a little bit. But I think Gove is less bullish about a no deal. I think Cummings is only cares about October the 31st getting Brexit done. Gove understands that November the 1st, you have to bring the country back together. So Gove is a little bit more wary of that, I think. Um, well, we've come to the end of the podcast and a chance to look outside politics just for a minute. Um, MPs are human too, honest. Even Telegraph Westminster correspondents are human. Absolutely. And, and we need to recharge our batteries. So what are we all looking forward to for the coming weekend? Well, well I am going to the Labour Party conference. Oh, That's I know. I know. <laughs> 
I know, that'd be a good chance to recharge the batteries. Telegraph goes down well there. So I should be there at the Labour Party conference, uh, yeah, trying to watch a bit of football, I think. What, what about you, Sam? Well, I'm connecting with the Liberal Democrats in East Surrey who can't believe their luck. They've got a Liberal Democrat MP <laughs> in what was one of the safest Conservative seats in the country. Well, I, I, I know what I'll be doing. I'll be watching the start of the Rugby World Cup and, uh, and, and very, much, very much looking forward to that. And that's the end of this week's On The House. We'll be back next week for another pint after the political week. So don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcast app. Goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And thanks for having me, guys. Much appreciated.